Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them, so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisers and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except for you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went and, as a group, found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being, except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands, in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, 
Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Well, as Mike said, Daniel in the lion's den is probably one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. In fact, I don't think I found a children's Bible that doesn't include it. There are so many elements of this account that appeal to us, aren't there? Um, of course, there are the lions. There's no singing or dancing like Simba in The Lion Kings. Quite simply, they're just deadly. Um, there's the political intrigue, which would feel at home in an episode of The West Wing. There's the uncompromising example of Daniel, the God-fearing servant, who will not compromise his beliefs and convictions. Well, I hope as we look at Daniel with fresh eyes, whether it's for the first time or for the hundredth time, that each one of us will be challenged to think about our ultimate allegiance and that we'll see that following God in this life is costly, but he will finally rescue all his people, all those who depend on him. So let's have a look at the war that's raging in the workplace and why living God's way is costly. So in verse one, uh, we meet Darius the Mede. He's shown up in chapter five right at the end there because he's establishing his rule. Uh, Darius is the king of Persia. And it's most likely that that name Darius the Mede is an enthronement title uh, for Cyrus the Great. Cyrus is the king of Persia. And uh, Media was part of that kingdom. And Cyrus conquered the Babylonians in his early 60s. Kingdoms come and go, just as Nebuchadnezzar had been told in the dream of the large statue back in chapter 2. And yet, as we have seen through the last five chapters of Daniel, this history he's recorded for us, around 66 years of service for Daniel, the big lesson is that the personal, powerful, promise-keeping creator God of the universe, the great I am, well, he's the one who's in charge. God is at work. And in the Lord's hands, Cyrus, also known as Darius, 
was to be a great liberator. The prophet Isaiah, 150 years before, had prophesied this, promised this. He was going to be a great restorer. And yet, as the new king on the block, Cyrus needs to learn who is in charge. Daniel, by this time, was easily in his 80s. He's lived the majority of his life as a political exile, educated and employed by a superpower who have crushed his nation. He learned to get on with living life in an alien world God's way. Clearly, Daniel's reputation went before him. Have a look at verse 3. We're told he's brilliant at his job. He has competence and character. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities, literally a spirit of excellence, that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. He was trustworthy, not corrupt, nor negligent. So when most people would be enjoying retirement, Daniel is in line for one of the three most senior roles in the kingdom. But like any workplace, there's always politics, there's always power plays, it's war. People can spend uh, enormous amounts of time seeking approval, getting the boss's recognition and thumbs up, rather than actually doing their work. It can be a place where colleagues can quickly uh, feel isolated, especially if things go wrong. I remember a person sharing with me their experience at work of an executive level board meeting that had been called to pick over something that had gone really wrong delivering a significant product. What stuck in this person's mind was the way people around the board table quickly shifted responsibility. He said you could see people pushing their chairs back from the board table making it very clear who was going to take the responsibility as they protected themselves. Someone was going to take the heat for this error. There was no collective responsibility here. It was brutal. And power plays in the workplace typically flow, don't they, from pride and insecurity. And yet over his lifetime of work, Daniel had learnt to lean on God, whose mighty power humbles us and whose abounding love keeps us secure. What an antidote to power plays at work. If Daniel only cared about money, then a bribe would have done the job here, wouldn't it? But what do you do when someone's life is profoundly shaped by their first love? By God. And that's how this gang of colluding civil servants would bring him down. Go for his primary allegiance. Attack his deepest loyalty. We will never find anything against him unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Verse 5. And so the trap was set, not just for Daniel, but also Darius. He was also hooked. Perhaps the king was blinded by their flattery or feared a political coup. Whatever, Darius green lights an irreversible decree. Now at this point, if I was Daniel, I must be thinking, look, I'm too old for all this. Surely having a 30-day break from prayers is fine. I could just pray more privately, like whilst I'm at my desk doing other stuff, or I could go for a walk in the Royal Park and pray. I don't need to make it as obvious that I'm going off to say my prayers. However, Daniel's steadfast example shines a light on our own convictions. It certainly does on mine and my example. So what are your red lines? What are you not prepared to cross? What are the core convictions of your faith that you will not compromise on? And why do they matter to you? Why do they matter to God? 
What is lost if you lost those convictions? And that's why we need to look at how Daniel perseveres in prayer. Why does Daniel persevere in prayer? It might be that he's memorised King Solomon's own prayer in, in 1 Kings 8 with the expectation that God's people prayed towards the temple in Jerusalem, knowing that they would be heard by God. But wait a sec, God has figuratively moved out of Jerusalem. The temple and the city are in ruins. The Lord was with the exiles. That's been made clear by the messages of Ezekiel the prophet and Jeremiah. God is with his people in exile. So looking to Jerusalem wasn't superstition. It wasn't a religious habit or sentimentalism. No, it was a heart act a heartfelt act of faith. It was a sign of deep trust. Praying towards a ruined city showed Daniel was looking forward to something that he could not yet see, but knew would happen. The restoration of God's city, the renewal of God's people. This was a red line he would not compromise because it was integral to Daniel's identity. His prayer life flowed from his identity as a citizen in God's eternal kingdom. You see, this wasn't political or religious insurgency. This was persevering, obedient faith, seeking God's blessing at any cost. Daniel was obeying God's explicit instruction through Jeremiah, the faithful prophet in Jerusalem, and in Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, which was written around 587 BC, when the city and the temple were finally and completely destroyed by the Babylonians, in that letter, the Lord said, seek the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You can read the letter in Jeremiah 29. You see, Daniel isn't cutting himself off from the culture or his workplace. He isn't spoiling for a fight. He hasn't lined up ranting tweets or waving placards with Bible verses on it. He's obediently and generously committing himself to pray for the health and the blessing of the nation he's in, for the new king, for his devious co-workers, for his fellow exiles, for the restoration of God's city. He knows his everyday work matters because in the Lord's hands, it can be used to help more people know God's truth to live under God's blessing. So quite simply, Christian, why would you give up on your prayer life? Persevere, especially in a pandemic. Why not review your commitments in prayer? Make a commitment to be praying for your workplace, for the projects you're facing, for the deadlines for your colleagues, for, for the workplace office environment, even whilst you're working remotely. Wherever you serve, wherever you spend the majority of your week, pray for those people, pray for their peace, pray for their prosperity. One encouragement that I'm aware of that's come out of remote working due to the pandemic is the growth in workplace prayer groups. 
Whilst in some countries to have an openly evangelistic meeting or, or an open prayer meeting is illegal, you know what? It's not illegal here in the UK. In fact, many businesses and workplaces uh, encourage prayer groups and Bible studies. They're promoted by some firms. What a gift. What a freedom. It's a simple way to serve, isn't it? Perhaps it's something that you could do next year. Consider setting up a little workplace fellowship group, a prayer group, of meeting other Christians and having it open to those who might want to come in and ask questions and find out more about your faith and how it impacts your work. But having a robust prayer life, living with consistent integrity, does not mean you'll have a guaranteed, comfortable, trouble-free life. No, Daniel was prepared to defy the sinful law of the Medes and the Persians because to love God meant obeying God's law. And Darius's edict went against the first commandment. So Daniel chose to go God's way, but that led to death. Have a look at verse 13 with me as we look at a powerless king meeting a saviour God. Then they, that's the gang of royal officials, said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the degree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sunset to save him. Then the men went as a group to Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Did you notice how the conspirators paint Daniel as a threat? They don't refer to his title, just one of the exiles from Judah, a prisoner of war, in other words. Be warned, O king, he's dangerous. He pays no attention to you. Their lies so doubt and distrust. But the king is locked in, there's no way out. And there's tragic irony here, isn't there? That a, the king of a superpower is utterly helpless and powerless to save a loyal subject. Like Midas realising the horror of his golden touch, Darius is an imprisoned king. And unlike any of the Babylonian kings we glimpse, we see here a glimpse of, of Darius's remorse, his compassion in his reaction. As Daniel is cast into the den of death, Darius even breaks his own law, offering a, a brief but heartfelt prayer to Daniel's God. The tomb is sealed. Daniel's situation cannot be changed. The king is broken. He fasts with no distractions to fill a sleepless night. This powerless king, right here, right now, is being schooled by God, much like Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. Darius the king is being humbled by God through the example of an older, wiser, faithful, prayerful believer. Darius, if you can't rescue Daniel, who can? The answer comes first thing in the morning, delivered by Daniel himself. Verse 22. 
My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Instead of ripping Daniel to shreds, the lions didn't harm him. These creatures were popular royal symbols of strength and power, yet they had been calmed and controlled by the Lord's messenger. In the Bible, lions are used as an image of judgment in Psalm 22. And nature in its rawness, tooth and claw in Psalms 10 and Psalm 57. And in the New Testament, um, Peter the Apostle in his first letter uses the lion as a sign of spiritual oppression. But positively, the final symbolic use of the lion is given to Jesus. Not only is he the Lamb of God, but he is the Lion of Judah, the sacrificial risen King of Kings. Again, the message is clear. As in the furnace with Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, the Lord was present with his suffering servant and delivered him from judgment. Daniel declares, God saved me because he was blameless in his service to the king and innocent before God. He trusted God and did not deny him. As the Bible commentator Andrew Reid puts it, by closing the mouths of the lions, God was saying, Daniel, you've made the right choice. You have vindicated. My law is the law. It is true and right. Darius acts decisively as well in two ways, to punish and to praise. He punishes the subversive officials who made a fool of him and attempted to actually harm his rule because of it. And in keeping with the Persian punishment, they and their families. So there could be no retaliation experienced Daniel's punishment. The king then willingly declares who has the ultimate power in his song of praise directed to the living God, the God of Daniel. But where does that leave us? Is the moral of Daniel 6, be really good, be really courageous, and you can expect God to make sure nothing bad will happen to you? On one level, even as, as I say, it, it sounds silly when I put it this way, but many people think faith in God works like this. They get very upset and angry when bad things happen to them. Firstly, Daniel never claimed to be perfect. We see that in chapter 9 a little bit later. And it's around the same time as this lion den incident. He's praying for forgiveness. We read in chapter 9, verse 3, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed and confessed. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. You see, he was just like everyone else, a sinner in need of forgiveness, not a good person who had earned God's help. If the lion's den miracle was some binary lesson about being good and God will look after you, then I know someone who is outrageously good, more righteous than any person I've known. He was generous and welcoming. He got alongside all types of people, the powerful, the ordinary, the unreachable. He wasn't afraid to challenge them. He also forgave them. He also met their needs. He was betrayed. He was arrested on false charges. He was tortured and executed. He too had a stone rolled over him and sealed by a powerful ruler. Jesus Christ was that man. 
He was righteous in every way. He did actually die. He went through the whole thing. And the good news Jesus taught was that he went through the ultimate lion's den, the cross, the anger of God the Father at our sin. He took the shame, the humiliation, the pain of death and the isolation of the tomb so that we don't have to. He came through it too. Jesus really rose from the dead physically. Daniel was lifted out by ropes. Jesus was lifted out by the power of God. And that's why the miracle you have to reckon with is Jesus's resurrection. It's the one that all the other miracles point to. As Pastor Tim Keller puts it, Jesus doesn't deliver outside of the furnace or outside of the lion's den, but right in the midst of it. A few decades ago, I had the opportunity to serve on a youth camp with a guy who was a youth worker in London. Before that, he was a builder and he had worked on several sites. He did loads of jobs, everything from putting up the scaffolding to cementing walls and, and all sorts. He was a big guy, strong guy. He also had another line of employment. He was a bouncer at a nightclub, but he also was one of the guys you could hire if you needed someone sorting out. People would actually visit him on the building site and hire him to intimidate and do violent things to people. But there came a day when he came to know Jesus as his king and saviour. It was a radical transformation. Now, on the building site, during his tea breaks or lunch, he would read his Bible. He'd chat about the gospel with, with friends and, and other workers. He'd offer to pray with people as well, which some took him up on. This caused quite a stir, to the extent that the management gave him two official warnings, telling him to stop it, and then they fired him. They were more offended by his commitment to God and the positive impact on his work than they were about him being hired as a hitman during work time. His commitment to following Jesus was costly. His marriage broke up. He was unemployed for a time. He knew Jesus was with him in the brokenness and that was the place his dependence on God deepened. In time, he was restored. He prospered. You see, the den, as well as the prayer room, are both places to encounter God. The den, as well as the prayer room, are both places to encounter God. Living God's way, depending on Jesus Christ as King and Saviour, is costly. But God will not let us down. He will ultimately, on the last day, save everyone who depends on him and worships him. For some of you, that will mean maybe the next step is taking time to look more closely at what God offers you in saying, come to me and be saved. Enjoy life with me. Maybe you're still not convinced. There are plenty of questions to answer. And Grace Church is a great place to find answers, to ask your questions. You'll meet people who know God's forgiveness and are trusting Jesus for it. In the new year, as Mike said earlier, we're hosting Life Explored. It's a great resource. It's helped many people, not just here in the UK, but around the world, to engage with Jesus's message of love and life. We'd love you to join us for it. For the Christians, perhaps you need to reflect on some of the specific issues you're facing right now whether it's at work, with family, with the challenges the pandemic has brought into your life, 
and discern how is the Lord using these to grow your faithfulness to him? How is he changing you to love him more and be obedient? What are your red lines, your core Christian convictions that you won't give up or compromise? What practices do you need to start doing that are distinctive to grow in faithful obedience to Jesus Christ? Perhaps it is growing in your prayer life. It could be growing in generosity. What about the issue of forgiveness? Perhaps it's growing in sharing the Bible with people. Maybe there are darker, willful sins that you just won't let go of that need reforming. Don't ignore the promptings God has given you, even this morning. If there is a pastoral issue, please contact uh, your life group leader or a staff member here at Grace. You do not do this on your own. We're all saved by grace and works in progress. I'll close with the words of the Apostle Peter to Christians scattered throughout Turkey in the first century. They felt like spiritual exiles. It was the Roman Empire that was oppressing. And let Peter's words, the Lord's words in the power of the Spirit speak to us from 1 Peter, um, starting at verse 11, chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. So Grace Church, as you prepare for 2021, Daniel 6 calls us to reaffirm our ultimate allegiance to God, the Father, Son and Spirit, recognising this life as a follower of Jesus Christ is not free from hardship, nor are we immune from suffering nor injustice. Things may get worse before they get better. There will be tears and there will be rejoicing. But no matter what, in Jesus Christ we have a great saviour who defeated the ultimate lions of death and judgment so that whatever significant dents we will face in this life, we know they will not imprison us because our real home is with him, where together with all his people, we will prosper with him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the living God who endures forever. Come to us now in your goodness. Come to spread your treasures, to enrich our hearts with all grace and strength, to bear all afflictions, to encounter all dangers with the peace and joy of your Holy Spirit so that your will would be done in and through us now and forever. Amen.